This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. So I was going a few more minutes, and that's when I saw my first windmill. And when I say I saw the windmill, I saw the bottom of the windmill because the top was still sticking up through the clouds. It scared the heck out of me. And I, I immediately turned away from it and I stole a glance down at my tablet and I realized that there was a whole line of windmills between me and Kankakee. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in interesting situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is Dennis Martin. Dennis is the Director of Sales and Marketing for Instrum Helicopters, and he's going to share a story with us today about flying an Instrum 480. Dennis started flying when he was 17 years old, comes from a flying family. He's helicopter rated, commercial rated, IFR rated, and he's got over 2,000 hours of general aviation flying time. Dennis, thanks for joining us on the There I Was podcast. Thank you, Richard. I'm happy to be here. Dennis, you were sharing with us a story. You you had flown to the AOPA Carbondale fly-in in an Instrum 480, really interesting, capable helicopter, and uh, had a good weekend there, but found yourself, like many from that fly-in, trying to figure out a way to get home from that front that was sitting there and didn't seem to be getting out of the way. Share that story with us, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. It was October 2018, early October and uh, we had decided to fly down to Carbondale, Illinois for the AOPA Regional. It, it is a, an event we always wanted to participate in, so we, the opportunity uh, came up. It's, it's only five flying hours from the Enstrom factory, and so I decided to grab a helicopter and go down there. We had a brand new uh, 480B. It only had 10 hours on it, beautiful helicopter, well-equipped, had a Garmin uh, 650 in it, ADSB weather, traffic, uh, all all the good stuff that you'd want in a modern aircraft. And so the flight down was great. Beautiful weather, Cavu, uh, five hours, one fuel stop. And I thought, wow, this is pretty neat. And that 480 is a single pilot with four passengers, right? Correct. And a range of roughly 500 miles or so? Yeah, you know, we it's about 350 miles. Typically, I flight plan about 300 miles, and then I then I want to stop for fuel. That gets me about three hours, and that's a good time to get out and stretch my legs. Yeah, because you're cruising at about 120 knots or so. Yeah, about 100. It likes 100. It'll it'll go faster, but it it likes 100. That's its happy place. 
And your factory is just north of uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin, right? Yeah, we're about 60 miles north. We're, we're in Menominee, Michigan, Michigan's Upper Peninsula. All right. So there you are. You had a nice weekend. Now all you got to do is get home. How hard can it be? Yeah. You know, <laughs> like anybody else, you know, you, you start your, your planning a couple days ahead. So you look at the weather trends, you know, you look at the fronts, you look at the prog charts and things like that. And uh, there was, it was pretty evident there was trouble brewing. There was a cold front sitting right in central Illinois. It started in St. Louis and it went all the way up through lower Michigan. And it was just funneling rain and thunderstorms and just generally awful weather right through the middle of the state. And south of it was beautiful. It was beautiful in Carbondale and north of it um, was, was good as well, but you just couldn't get through it. And you really couldn't get around it, not effectively. It would have taken a lot of flying to get around it. And all of us there were, were watching it. So, you know, we're, I'm talking with the other vendors there, the other pilots, and we're all kind of looking at this same weather. As the day wore on, you know, we're, we're all kind of deciding, the guys that are going north, are we going to stay or are we going to go? And I had done everything right. I, I kept my rental car. I kept my hotel room. I, I didn't want to be pressured into making a bad go decision. Um, you know, I realized that this was a not good weather and I didn't want to be pushed into flying into it. But as the afternoon wore on, it, it actually started to improve. It looked like the line was going to break up a little bit and there was going to be some some gaps in the weather. My goal was to get to Chicago. My sister lives in Chicago and I figured if I could get there, I could overnight in Chicago. And I could get ahead of that weather because that weather was going to move north. If we looked at the progs, the weather was going to move north. And if I didn't get ahead of it on Saturday, I was going to be stuck behind it for about another week. But it looked like I was going to be able to get there. Chicago was forecasting, oh, I don't know, 1,100 feet and 10 miles. Uh, so not great weather, but, but certainly flyable, especially in a helicopter. Mm-hmm. And so uh, real late in the day, I, I made the decision to go. Just to go back a little bit, we have at Enstrom, um, you know, we, we are an OEM manufacturer. We have a flight department. It's relatively small, but uh, we, we do uh, try to do things by the book. We have standard operating procedures, SOPs. And our SOPs say that when we are away from the factory, um, we have to have what's called a PAL, a pilot aircraft liaison. And that's somebody who's tracking us, keeping track of what's going on. And so my pal was our, our marketing manager, Jackie. She does that a lot when we travel. We have a little spot tracker in the helicopter. She can follow us along with an app on her phone. It re- records our position every few minutes. And uh, so I texted Jackie, let her know what the plan was. Hey, I'm, I'm heading out of Carbondale. It's about 4.30. I'm going to get to Chicago Executive. I'm going to stay the night there, come home in the morning. Text it back. That's fine. That notion of a pal is so powerful, and I love the acronym for it. We had the same thing when I flew in the military, you know, your operations officer, you're basically constantly keeping in touch with them and letting them know what your plan was. And it was sort of a second set of eyes. They very, very rarely ever told you, no, you can't go. Or in fact, I don't ever remember. But what they would frequently do is just poke your decision making a little bit, you know, well, have you thought of this or have you looked at that? And just having to make that call sort of reinforce some planning and thinking on your part. And we've been advocating in general aviation for a while. The Air Safety Institute has 
to develop this network yourself within your own group of flying. I do it at AOPA. I have some friends and colleagues. I have my brother who's a fantastic GA pilot. I treat them like what you call a pal in Instagram, where I text them where I'm going, what I'm thinking, and that way somebody knows where I am. And they also a little bit of a safety net to, you know, occasionally to say, Richard, what are you thinking? Look at this or look at that. That's a pretty powerful concept that you guys have, and I really recommend it for all of general aviation pilots to build it within their own personal network. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it it makes you responsible to somebody more than just yourself, for one, which is good, but it also does, you know, just sort of add that extra layer of safety of, of somebody knows where you are, where you're going, and where you're expected to be. And again, the nature of our flying is a little unique. Being an OEM, um, we're, we're often flying differently configured aircraft. We're not flying the same aircraft day to day. Some of our aircraft don't have ELTs, um, which, which is actually legal in the U.S. And, and so having that PAL, watching the spot tracker and, and just, you know, following us along really adds a layer of safety and, and also a layer of convenience because, quite frankly, um, we can just go to that person and go, where's Dennis or where's Bill or, you know, where's the helicopter? And that person always knows. So everybody in the factory knows who the pal is for that flight. And uh, my, my phone doesn't get blown up with text. Where are you? They just go to her. It works very well. Great. So you checked in with your pal. She gives the thumbs up or sees no issues and you launch. Yep. So I took off uh, out of Carbondale, beautiful weather, uh, sunny, warm and uh, headed north and about... Um, 50, 75 miles, I, I hit that front. And just as predicted, a, a beautiful gap opened up, about a 75-mile-wide gap opened up. And I just watched it right on my on my ADSB weather, you know, looking at the cells on to the left and the right of me, and I shot right through it. You mentioned that you had a good 25 miles either side of these cells, so you felt really comfortable that you weren't shooting this real small gap. You were going with pretty good buffer on either side. Absolutely. Everybody recommends staying 25 miles away, and I was I was easily 25 miles away. And you know, and you're looking at the age of the weather and all those things. Uh, um, again, the Garmin shows the age of the weather, but even with that, I, I had plenty of room. I could see the cells on either side of me. It was it was just very clear visibility. And about what altitude were you cruising here? Oh, uh, we fly low, 500 feet. With my airplane background, I fly higher than most helicopter pilots. So, you know, I, I might be up 500 or 1,000 feet, and, and they're, they're getting nosebleeds wondering why I'm, I'm flying so high. <laughs> um, but, yeah, typically we fly pretty low. Um, I had a nice tailwind. I was making good time. Um, the, the GPS showed I was going to be in Chicago in about two hours. And I thought, boy, this is really slick. As I got through that line uh, and I, I got near um, Champaign, Illinois, that's – when the first, I guess, uh, sign of trouble sort of started. And there was a little cloud deck that I had to duck under. And I, I actually got down to about uh, three, 400 feet. Again, in the helicopter, you know, you, you really shouldn't be doing that stuff, but we kind of get away with it. Um, you, know, you can fly a little slower, and we had good visibility. I could see underneath the deck to the other side, and so I, I ducked underneath it and went back up. And we should stress here to our, our fixed-wing audience that the rules for helicopters in Class G airspace are different as far as cloud clearances, right? You can go down to clear of clouds and a half-mile visibility in a helicopter in Class Golf airspace, right? Yeah, absolutely. You, you can. Now, it doesn't mean you should. Right. But you can. And 
in this particular case, you know, it's it's something that um, I had done before. I had done a number of cross-country trips with our chief pilot and our CFI and, uh, you know, thousand-mile trips in the helicopter. And, and, you know, when you traverse that much country, you're going to run into weather. And these are things we had done before where we had, you know, ducked under cloud decks and things like that. And I'm not trying to make it sound like you can just go ahead and do these things all the time and it's safe. It's a decision that you have to make at the time. But if you have good visibility, you can see through to the other side. There's no obstacles in the way. Um, you can slow the aircraft down and typically do that safely. And I find that's the key when you're going low and you have a relatively low ceiling. The real key is visibility. Assuming that you got your cloud clearances and you're legal and all that stuff, then what you're really worried about is the visibility. And if you have good visibility, then you're able to accept a lower cloud deck. But once visibility starts to drop, that's when things get really tense and you have to really start thinking about what am I doing down here? Yeah, and I was going to find that out in about 45 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And the weather in Champaign was beautiful. Um, you know, basically no ceilings. Um, you know, maybe a maybe a little scattered layer up high and and clear. But I noticed that my my tailwind had sheared off. I lost my tailwind, and I, I sort of realized uh, things are things are changing here. And I had picked up flight following. So one of the one of the things I do, especially if I'm going to, um, especially when I'm flying in and around Chicago, which which I transit through there periodically. Or if I'm I'm in any kind of situation where I might get into night weather or or, or nighttime flying or or a little bit of weather is I'll pick up flight following even in the helicopter, just um, again that sort of added layer of security having someone there watching me, um, someone to talk to, someone to go to if I have questions, and so I'd picked up flight following. I was talking to Champagne and um, they handed me off to Chicago Center. And I cruised on north and just north of Champaign, I could see a line of clouds, like just this line on the horizon. And I figured that was my 1100 foot layer over Chicago. And I I knew that, you know, at some point I was going to have to get down underneath that. So I traveled on and, and I eventually hit that line and started descending a little bit to stay below it. This particular aircraft had a radar altimeter in it, so I, I knew exactly how high I was off the ground. If you've never flown with a rad alt, it's pretty cool, especially when you're when you're bumming around about 500 feet. As I traveled north, the clouds kept getting lower and lower, and I'm getting pushed down. You know, my my rad alt's going 500, 400, and you know when when it gets down, you know, 400 feet or more, I I start to get a little nervous, and. I'd done this before, but this time things were different because the visibility was coming down as well. And I I no longer had that 10 miles of visibility. I had about five and then four and then three. And and that was starting to come in along with with the weather, with the clouds. But in my mind, and, and this is sort of the trap we fall into as pilots, in my mind, I knew what the weather was in Chicago. And I'd been pulling it up on you know, I've been pulling up the ADSB weather. I've been pulling pulling up the METARs. And in Chicago, it was still 1,100 feet and 10. And so I knew that in front of me was better weather. And I kept telling myself, you know, it's, it's going to go back up. It's going to go back up because I'm getting close to Chicago. And I know the weather there is good. It's being reported as good. But it wasn't. It, it, was, just getting, it was just getting progressively worse. It got to the point where I was I was down to um, I was at 250 feet and I was I was down to about a half mile. 
Now, at this point, when you're in a helicopter, fixed wing guys like me, you know, we don't quite fully understand this. What's your ability in a helicopter to just slow things down? Uh, how slow can you go when you're in that situation? Can you talk us through that kind of thinking in the, in the rotary wing world? You know, theoretically, you can go as slow as you want. You can pull it right up and stop it. But we have what's called um, the HV curve, the height velocity curve. And helicopters, they don't necessarily glide, they auto-rotate. If you have an engine failure, we, we auto-rotate. And uh, auto-rotating is the air coming up through the rotor, keeps the rotor spinning, controls your rate of descent, gives you control, and you can flare at the bottom, make a nice landing. Not hard. It's, it's no harder than making a, you know, when you did your uh, fixed wing training, doing, you know, engine out training, it's the same thing. But in order to successfully auto-rotate, you need either altitude or airspeed or a combination of both. And so if you're real high, you can be zero airspeed. If you're real low, you need a lot of airspeed because you need to be able to convert that energy um, in, into rotor RPM. And we actually have a graph. Every helicopter flight manual is going to have a chart or a graph that shows sort of the combinations of altitude and airspeed that you need to have in order to, to successfully auto-rotate. And I don't know exactly what airspeed I needed to have at, at 250 feet, but I like 60. 60 is the, auto, is the typical auto-entry speed on the 480B. Um, so if you're flying 60 and everything goes to heck, you're already at the right speed. You just dump the collective and do your auto. And so I, I didn't want to get below 60. At 60 knots and a half mile, I had 30 seconds. And again, helicopters are, are really no different than airplanes. If you're, if you're going 60 knots in the helicopter, it's going to take you the same amount of distance to stop as it's going to take you to stop your airplane at 60 knots. So if you land your airplane at 60 knots, how much runway does that take? I don't know, 1,200 feet, you know, a quarter mile. So the helicopter is going to take maybe a little less than that, but not much. So 30 seconds sounds like a lot, but you're going to eat up half of that trying to stop. And so just for clarity, your thinking is you're going to slow down to uh, 60 so that now you're progressing through this limited visibility slower. And if you see something, a tower or something like that, you should be able to see it 30 seconds before it comes to you. But the point you're making is that's not a full 30 seconds you're going to take some time to see it, recognize it, initiate the action, and the aircraft to respond to that. So it gets less than 30 seconds pretty quickly. Yeah, you know, when you're counting one, one to 30, that sounds like a lot. But when everything's moving, it's, it's not. So I made the decision at that point. I, I really wanted to get to Chicago. I, you know, I knew that I had to get there to get in front of that weather. I, you know, I had family. My sister was waiting for me. I got all these pressures to get there. I realized, hey, I'm falling into this trap. This is get itis this is how people get killed. You need to stop. And so I, I looked down. I had my little my iPad with, with my uh, sectional on it. And uh, the, the two nearest airports were either Pontiac, Illinois, or Kankakee. And uh, I had actually stopped at Pontiac on the way down for fuel. I knew there was nothing in Pontiac. And Kankakee, you, you know how the, uh, you know, on the sectional chart, there's little yellow blocks around the airport. It shows you the size of the city. Um, right, Kankakee yeah. had a sort of a decent size yellow block around it. And I figured, well, you know, I can probably get a hotel and a rental car there. Um, and so I, I diverted towards um, Kankakee, which would have been, you know, to the northeast of me. And so I made my turn and I, and I, I didn't have a lot of, you know, this was not a real sort of deliberate decision. It was about a half second glance and I made my turn. 
Because you're in half-mile visibility, you can't afford much time inside the cockpit. This is all about eyes out, looking for obstacles. You're at 250 feet. You don't have the luxury of spending almost any time with your head inside the cockpit. Absolutely. I was not going to screw around, you know, trying to pull up services or anything like that. It was it was quick glances was all I was doing. So I made my turn, and, and a few minutes later, a center noticed I had diverted and and called me up and they said, Six Echo Echo, you know, saw you've turned uh, to the northeast. What's going on? And I said something about, um, you know, weather's getting way low down here or something like that, um, which was an understatement, but that I was diverting to Kankakee. So I, I trucked on a few more minutes and, and it was just was not getting any better. And about that time, Center came back and asked for a frequency change. And my immediate response was unable. And when they came back and he sort of, you know, was a little bit puzzled and he asked why. And, and I said, uh, my hands are full. Boy, what a critical decision, Dennis, right there. And such a great decision that you made to realize that you are fully task saturated. You have got as much as you can handle. Center wants you to change the radios and you have the situational awareness and the confidence to say unable. It's always hard to say the accident that didn't happen. But in my mind, as I read through the story in the summary you provided us, there it is. That's one really critical decision that you made because in the situation that you're in to try to go heads down, worry about talking to center and working your radio and all that, who knows how that ends up. Yeah, exactly. You know, I just, I didn't want to take my hands off the controls. I didn't want to look down and I was busy flying the helicopter and um, I wasn't going to let him fly it for me. Certainly he was trying to help and I appreciated that, but I needed to do what I needed to do. And, and if that meant I lost center, I lost center, but that was, you know, it's aviate, navigate, communicate. And, and so that was a little bit far down on my list. Hey listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the general aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. This may be a good point to talk about spatial disorientation and, and helicopters, right? Because maybe that was partly going through your mind is you just know you're task saturated. You don't want to go heads down inside the cockpit for visibility reasons, you know, avoiding obstacle reasons. But also the spatial disorientation, you know, there's a really famous video that was like 178 seconds to live or something like that for a fixed wing that came out a while ago. ASI uh, sort of did a repeat of that. But in helicopters, I learned recently that it's more like 57 seconds to live. If you kind of stumble into IMC accidentally in a helicopter, your time to survive that is very short compared to fixed wing, 57 seconds or so. Can you talk us through that? Has that been your experience or why, why is that the case in helicopters? Most helicopters, in, 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 unless you get into the big Sikorsky S92s and stuff like that, that are, you know, fully coupled autopilots and a lot of the EMS helicopters, you know, they have autopilots. Most of us don't fly IFR. Um, the aircraft are not IFR certified. We equip them IFR and we do a lot of IFR training in them, but always VFR conditions. And really what it has to do with stability. It's not like trying to stand on a beach ball. I mean, the, the helicopters are not completely unstable, but they do not have the inherent stability that the aircraft does. And 
I'm instrument rated in the airplane, not in the helicopter, but I've, I've done some approaches and stuff like that. And I've, I'd done some instrument flying in the helicopter and I had actually done some recently and it's not so bad when you're doing your, your six pack scan, it's not so bad to keep the aircraft level and on course where things really get into trouble is if you have to go heads down and change a frequencies, load and approach, go mist, something like that. Now you've got a real handful on your hands because you're not on top of it. You don't have that inherent stability you know, on the airplane, you can kind of look down for a few seconds and tune the dials. In the helicopter, it's going to go away on you. You have to be on it every second. That was where I was very glad that I had center, that I had flight following, because I knew that if I went inadvertent, I could immediately climb and just get vectors. That was my plan. You know, I, I thought about that, you know, because everything's kind of going to heck. And I said, Look, if, if I go inadvertent, I'm not going to try to go go down out, out of it. I'm going to climb and get vectors. I'm already on with them. I don't have to talk. I don't have to find anybody. I can just climb and do what I need to do. So there you are. You make a really key decision, unable, not going to go heads down inside the cockpit now with what I'm dealing with, and you start making your way to Kankakee. Correct. And I realized, you know, you hit it right on the head. I was task saturated. And I realized that at that moment, you know, after I had said that, I said, holy cow, you know, I'm, I'm task saturated here. This is not good. And I looked down and I was over about 50,000 acres of soybean fields. I mean, just endless soybean fields. And in my mind, I'm going, okay, I can land in any one of these fields. It's not ideal, but I'm not over a city. I'm not over a forest. I'm not over water. I'm over, in, in helicopter terms, I'm over essentially the biggest landing pad, you know, helipad you can have. And so I, I felt comfortable, as comfortable as you could be uh, trucking on. And so so I, I went a little farther and I, I could tell center was getting a little agitated with me. They were getting nervous as, as to what was happening. About that time, they asked um, if I'd like to declare an emergency. And my response was, not at this time, which in hindsight is probably one of the dumbest things I've ever said. I mean, not at this time. Why, you know, when is there a better time? <laughs> you know, but that was my response. And again, I'm, I'm looking down at these fields and I'm going, well, I can land. You know, I, this is not an emergency. I can land. And the other thing I'm sort of thinking is, well, what can they do for me? You know, why declare emergency? They can't do anything for me. Again, in hindsight, that was really sort of a, a dumb thing to say because I don't know what they could have done for me. I didn't ask. And it really didn't cost you anything. You know, it's so easy to see in hindsight, right? But we've learned that it really didn't cost you anything. The whole notion of all this red tape and forms you got to fill out is overrated. Oftentimes, you don't have to fill out any paperwork. So that's one thing that you look back and you say, well, if I had to do that again, I'd probably just say, yes, give me an emergency. Yeah, yeah. And it would have helped a lot later on, too, hmm. when, in the aftermath. But we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. So I was going a few more minutes, and that's when I saw my first windmill. And when I say I saw the windmill, I saw the bottom of the windmill because the top hmm. was still, still sticking up through the clouds. Oh, wow. It scared the heck out of me. And I, I immediately turned away from it, and I stole a glance down at my tablet, and I realized that there was a whole line of windmills between me and Kankakee. You know, when I was glancing at my map and picking Pontiac or Kankakee, I just ignored all of that. 
it was certainly there. I just didn't see it. And I, I sort of cursed myself going, you know, how could you be so stupid to think you could fly through a dozen windmills? And I noticed that they were all north of a, of a road. And I figured if I just stayed south of that road, I would I would not hit the windmills. And so I I turned due east. And right about that time, Center came on and said, you know, Six Echo Echo, be advised there's some windmills out there. And I said, yeah, I just, <laughs> I just found them, you know. And uh, so I started going east, and I, I glanced down at my, my tablet again, and I noticed about three miles ahead of me was a little private airstrip. And I said, that's where I'm going. I'm, I'm going to go land at this private airstrip. I'm not going to try and, and end around these in-mills to Kankakee. This is getting ridiculous. I'll just go land at this guy's little grass runway. And I, I got about halfway there. And all of a sudden, I, I must have hit a low cloud or something. The entire windshield just missed it over. Boof. All my forward visibility is gone. Mm. And my flying experience, I've, I've got a lot of biplane time and some, you know, J3 Cub time and stuff. And so I'm, I'm used to not seeing forward. You know, that, that doesn't really throw me. And, and I immediately just transition my, you know, my view out the, the left window. The Enstrom, we sit on the left, we fly from the left seat. So I, I immediately just, just started looking out the left window. I instantly realized I, I can't go anymore if I can't see forward. I basically rolled into a left turn because that's what I could see. And I just said, I, you know, I'm done. And I looked down and there was a, a farmstead below me. And I said, that's it. That's my farm. I'm landing there. And that, that was it. I just made the decision. I'm, I'm done. I'm landing. And I was very cognizant of the fact that I was rattled. I was stressed. A lot was going on. And when that happens, you fall back on training. You fall back on procedure. That's not the time to try and wing it. And so I said, nope, I'm going to do my standard high recon. I'm going to do my standard low recon. I'm not going to hit a tower or catch a power line trying to land this thing after all I've been through. Okay. You know, that's, that's a really bad way to end this. And so I, um, I couldn't do a high recon cause I was too high, but I, I did a circle and then I did my low recon looking for power lines, looking for towers. There was nothing out there, made a nice approach and, and landed, uh, behind the silo of this, of this farm. But boy, that's so critical too, Dennis, that you're in this moment and you're obviously tense. You're task saturated. You've just come through. Suddenly you've lost your visibility. You've made the decision you're going to land and you take a breath. You just pause and say, I am going to land, but I'm going to do it correctly. And you fall back to your training and go through your procedure. And, you know, it turns out there were no obstacles, but you could easily see how somebody would make a rash decision and just want to get it on the ground and have a problem. So that's, that's so interesting that you're in this tense situation and yet you just kind of sit back, wind your watch, as we used to say, take a breath, go back to your procedures and then land it safely. Yeah, exactly. I, I just didn't want one problem to become an, another problem. And, and I wanted to just try to put as much normalcy Landing off airport, we do it in the helicopters all the time, but it's not landing on an airport. And so, you know, I just wanted to put as, as much normalcy back into this. And and as I was doing my circles, you know, center came on. And again, I could tell they were very worried about me. And they they offered me vectors to Kankakee. And I said, no, I'm over a, a farm and I'm, I'm going to land here. And they came back and they said, are, are you sure? We can vector you around. And, and this time I was I was pretty forceful with them. I said, no, I have my farm. I'm landing. And so I landed. And uh, the 480's got a turbine engine in it, Rolls-Royce turbine. It's got a two-minute cooldown. So I have my two-minute cooldown. And I just kind of sat there sort of 
reflecting on, you know, what had just happened and, and what I should do. And I thought about, you know, do I, do I need to call center? Let them know. I don't have their phone number. I pulled out my phone. I didn't have, I couldn't get good internet out there. And I said, you know, I, I just told them, I, I told them twice I was landing. It's fine. I shut down. I got out and I remember I was literally landed in six inches of mud. The mud was, was up over the top of the skids. And I kind of slogged through and I walked about 20 feet away and I looked back at this brand new helicopter. <laughs> it had less than 15 hours on it at this point. And I just landed it in a mud field and it went, oh, you know. <laughs> and, and so, you know, now you, you, you sort of, and, and this is, this is the, you know, why we're always worried about landing out is the what next, you know, what's going to happen. And I went to the farmhouse, there was no one home and it's, it's kind of cold and it's starting to rain. And I knew where I was in the air. I had no clue where I was on the ground. And it turns out I was 10 miles from any town. And I'm wondering just how I'm going to get out of here. So first thing I did was I texted my pal and let her know what happened. I said, hey, I'm on the ground. I got forced down by weather. I'm okay. Helicopter's okay. Everything's fine. Uh, find me a hotel room. Uh, next thing I did was text my wife, let her know I was okay, just because she would have saw that I had stopped and would have been worried as well. But I didn't really quite know what to do next. There was no one home at the farm and, you know, wasn't going to get an Uber or a taxi out there. About that time, um, a car was was driving up and down the road and they pulled into the driveway and it turned out to be one of the neighbors and his 13-year-old daughter. And she had seen me circling and they were worried I, I might have crashed or something. They didn't know what was going on and they were out looking for me. So I, I sort of gave them my, uh, you wouldn't believe what just happened story. And, uh, <laughs> um, and uh, I said, you don't know where there, you know, any chance you can give me a ride into town for a hotel. And they said, well, there's a bed and breakfast a mile up the road. So I threw all my stuff in the, in their car and they gave me a ride to the, the greenhouse bed and breakfast in Clifton, Illinois, lovely place, would highly recommend it. Knocked on the door and once again, gave them my, you wouldn't believe what just happened story. <laughs> and uh, do you guys have a room for the night? And they said, yeah, sure, no problem. And and so, um, you know, all this angst, all this worry, what am I What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? Less than a half hour after I landed, I, I was in a nice, comfy, warm room. Yeah, you know, I have found that to be the case whenever I've had a similar situation, not quite as dramatic as what you're explaining, but, you know, didn't want to divert and had to divert or stay and it has turned out to be some of the most enjoyable general aviation experiences that I've had because um, it just always seems to work out. But it's funny how in the moment we misprioritize. We start thinking about, well, how's it, how am I going to get a car? How am I going to get a place to stay? What am I? How are you going to save your life first? You know, let's deal with that. And then the rest of it just always seems to work out. Yeah, you know, in this case, there was a little bit more learning to come because what happened, what ended up happening is. Um, you know, I got to the bed and breakfast and took a shower and kind of calmed down a little bit. And they loaned me their cars so I could run into town and get a burger. And and as I drove into town, night was falling. And I, I remember driving past a, a sheriff's car that was driving real slow by the side of the road. And I didn't really think much of it. And as I drove into town, I looked at those windmills and I could see the tops of them now. And I realized the weather had gone up and I kind of cursed, you know. Now the weather's good. <laughs> of course, it's nighttime. <laughs> yeah. But I, I got into town and... Um, and was um, eating dinner, and I got a, a phone call from our chief pilot. I'm wondering, you know, boy, I wonder why he's calling 
Um, and I figured my pal Jackie must have must have called them and let them know what was happening. And phone rings and I answered and I said, you know, hey, Bill. And he goes, Dennis, where, where are you? And I, I didn't even know where I was. I looked at the menu. I said, I'm in Clifton, Illinois. And uh, he goes, are you OK? And I said, I'm fine. And he goes, well, the U.S. Air Force is looking for you. And instantly it all just fell into place. The cop I passed was looking for me. And I had not closed out properly with with center center called search and rescue u.s air force uh looked up the end number for the helicopter uh realized it was registered to um enstrom in menominee michigan called the local sheriff we do search and rescues for the local sheriff we volunteer our time they know our chief pilot they called chief pilot he called me and um so i said yeah absolutely i'm okay i told him the story i got the number for chicago center and called up center to let them know I was okay and got a supervisor there. And this guy was ticked and I don't blame him. After hearing the transcript, he started reading, he's reading this transcript to me and, and it's, it's things like, you know, weather getting way low, unable, hands are full. You want to declare an emergency, windmills in the vicinity. This is reading like an NTSB report. And this is unfolding before their eyes. And they don't see 50,000 acres of soybeans below me, okay? They don't see any of that. They just see what's on the other side of the radio. And um, I just felt terrible. And that's where, you know, things like taking the emergency declaration, why not? It would have made things so much easier um, because then I would have been forced to close things out with center. I, you know, it would have been phone calls and everything. Things would have been resolved right away. I could have maybe explained the situation a little better. But by sort of trying to pretend that it was, it was you know, business as usual, I just left this gaping hole out there that, that they didn't know what I was flying into. The next morning I got up and the weather was actually worse, believe it or not. And I borrowed the owner's car and I drove up to Chicago and I had a wonderful day with my sister. And I ended up staying at her house for the night. And um, the next morning, the weather cleared. And I went back down, got it out of the farm field. And and I actually, I got as far as Green Bay, Wisconsin. And I caught that weather again. And I figured this time, you know, I'm only, this is, this is my home. I know this area. I know every tower in the area. I can get it the last 60 miles. I got 30 miles. And I, and I said, I'm, I'm doing the same darn thing again. And I ended up parking it in a field by my house. And it stayed there a whole nother day before I got it home. So it took us four days to go 500 miles. But again, going back to, you know, you worry so much about about landing, but it just, I ended up having, a, I met some wonderful people and I had a great time. Man, what a story. So what I want to go to is you just made some crucial decisions and ultimately the decision, you know, in the helicopters, I know HAI has an initiative, land and live, right? And in essence, that's what you did. You just made the decision, I'm going to land and live. And unfortunately, as you know, people don't make that decision. They keep pressing, keep pressing. How could we learn from this, Dennis? What was it that finally triggered in your mind, I've got to make this decision? What was going on in your mind that we can share with people, this is how you do it? Land and Live is an initiative put together by HAI, which is our industry trade group, and is actually started by the late Matt Zaccaro. And Matt was a, he was kind of a real plain spoken New Yorker. And, and he noticed about five years ago, four or five years ago, he noticed a really sort of disturbing number of CFIT accidents in helicopters, control flight into terrain. And 
it's sort of ridiculous in an aircraft that can land anywhere how you would why you would knowingly fly one into the ground. And Matt, in his way, he came up with the saying of land the damn helicopter. Um, <laughs> and uh, HAI sort of made that a little politically correct when they when they said land and live. And they pushed it real hard. It's on buttons, it's on bags, it's on advertisements, it's everywhere. And as I was trucking along, and this was going from bad to worse, the pull to keep going is so strong. It is so strong. And especially in your case, because you believe the weather's better. So you believe you're just going to have to work through this little bitty area and the weather's going to get better. And then you're so close to home. You are like two thirds of the way home. If I can just get through this thing, you know, then, then I'm scot-free, right? That, had, that was probably going through your mind. Yeah. And, you know, I was so close to Chicago and then I was so close to Kankakee. And then I was so close to that little private strip. But at some point, you know, you just you just got to go. It's just a helicopter, man. And who cares? In the grand scheme of things, this is this is a bump in the road. And I don't recall any one, you know, was the light bulb moment. But it was it was just to a point where where I'd had enough. And and I just decided, you know, this this just isn't worth it. I have an out. I'm going to use my out. And I did. And I landed and I lived. I want to go back to a concept that we've learned some in the Air Safety Institute, and that is the first decision a pilot makes on a go-no-go decision is so powerful. And it turns out there's some research that kind of supports that as humans, once we make our first decision, we've gone through all the mental effort, we've assessed all the things, our system two level thinking is fully engaged, we've made our decision, we are very reluctant to go back and reassess that decision we quickly transition into execution mode. And that's a real issue for pilots because pilots are typically very goal-oriented people, whether it's to go get your license or the new rating or to get to your destination. So you, you assess all the factors and you make that very first decision to go. That's part of what's involved in some of these CFID and uh, spatial disorientation and inadvertent IMC is because we're reluctant to reassess it and to think, ah, maybe that wasn't the best decision. So maybe just recognizing how critical it is, the first decision we make, and then recognizing how difficult it's going to be for us to reverse that decision and take an alternate course of action. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think one of the things that really helped me is is I recognized early on that I was task-saturated and that I was getting in over my head. And that put into my mind the option of landing as a viable option. It was no longer the last option. It was a option. And, you know, so often we look down, you know, well, if the engine quits, it's all land there or whatever. But that's only last resort. And making it not the last resort, making it, you know, the second resort made it a lot easier to make that decision, you know, saying, you know, if this happens, I'm going to put it in that field. Will this happen? I'm going to put it in that field. So just being honest with yourself and recognizing where you're at and, and sort of um, playing through some of those scenarios in your mind, I think really helped me make, make that decision when the time came. And I also want to stress the really critical reaction you had when you were task saturated, things were very busy in your cockpit, centers trying to help and then give you a frequency change and you say unable. In my mind, that is such a critical decision 
that you made. And I just think having the confidence to know that you can say that to ATC, we've just read too many transcripts where pilots are just complying instead of working with the controller. And trust me, the controller wants to work with you. They think they're helping. So for you to come back and say unable, they'll figure it out, right? So having the confidence to do that when you were in that situation, to me, was a critical part of this event. At the end of the day, ATC is just people. And, and they're, I mean, they're great people and they're really well trained and they want to help. But if you're busy with something, you just, just tell them. You're pilot in command. You have to exercise command authority. You have to fly that aircraft and talk to them how you need to talk to them to do what you need to do. And the discipline, once you found the field, there you were, you had made the decision to land. And then you fall back and say, but I'm going to just step back, take a deep breath here follow through on my procedures. And where we find this happens in fixed wing flying a lot is people under this kind of condition can still kind of keep that harried mindset, that very stressful mindset. And that's where, for example, inadvertent gear up happens. You're out of your process flow, you're out of your normal timing sequence, and you're so happy to see the runway and you forget to put the gear down. So that was a pretty critical part, I think, for just that shows the discipline of your training for you to, once you through that, fall back to your procedures to do your low oversight. The other thing I want to stress is, and I really stress for general aviation pilots, to build a network. That's why I'm such a big believer in type clubs. Type clubs are so valuable. They're, they're everything good about general aviation. They're, they're full of knowledge. They're full of experienced people that can help you in how to maintain your aircraft and fly your aircraft. They're great social outlets. But this is a great avenue also for this PAL concept where you have somebody that you feel very comfortable texting or calling and say, hey, this is kind of what I'm thinking about. Does this make sense to you? It's something I do all the time, and we may find that it's very helpful in our decision-making. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm a big believer in mentors and, and having people that, that you can go to and, and get opinion and, and advice. And, you know, for a long time, my mentor was my dad. And when he moved on, you know, I brought in other mentors and especially in the helicopters, I have a couple guys at work that I've flown with a lot and have been able to bounce things off of and, and, and ask questions of. And you got to check your ego at the door and just be able to go to these guys and, and run things by them. And, and typically, you know, they, you're going to find that they always do, don't always have the answers, but working together, a lot of times you'll come up with something. And, and even afterwards, you know, when, after this all happened, you know, when I, when I finally got back to the factory, I sat down with our chief pilot. I sat down with our CFI. In fact, I sat down with all of the pilots at the company and we went through this and talked through the situation to see what we could learn. And oddly enough, all of them agreed with the go decision. Um, you know, they all looked at the weather and things like that and said, yeah, I would have gone. And all of them agreed with the land decision. But, you know, it was important for me to go back and talk with them about that and make sure that I had learned everything I could learn out of that so that hopefully it doesn't happen again. Or if it does, I can make the, make the right decisions. So valuable in our industry. And I, I like what you stressed. It's not that these mentors will have the right answer or it's black and white. If it were black and white, if it were an easy decision, you wouldn't have to call them, right? There will be some judgment in there. But what you will find is you have to think out loud. And sometimes you find yourself saying, did I just say that out loud? Was I really thinking that? So I agree with you. It's, uh, you know, just the conversation with them helps you think deeper about it. I also just want to thank you, Dennis, because I think a great part of our aviation heritage and the way that we've dropped our fatal accident rates so substantially over the years 
is people like you willing to step forward and say, hey, this happened to me. This is what I did right. This is what I did wrong. I want everybody to learn from it. So, you know, maybe you don't make the same mistakes or when you're in that situation, you do the things right that I did and, and it comes out successfully. So thank you for spending your time and sharing your story with us. It's a lot easier to learn from other people's mistakes than your own. And, you know, I'm sort of a big believer in that. And I grew up, you know, hangar flying with my dad and all his buddies. And that's what these guys would do. They would sit around the airport on a, on a rainy Saturday and tell stories about, you know, there I was in the sort of mess they got into and how they got out of it. And there was a lot of laughing and it was always laughing with them, never at them. And so I've always felt real comfortable. I, I always felt it's very important. And i personally felt comfortable sharing this stuff because, you know, I want people to just like I've learned from other people's mistakes and benefited from from their knowledge. Um, I want people to learn from mine as well. Thanks so much for your time, Dennis, and uh, wish you all the best and uh, hope to run into you sometime uh, soon around the patch. Absolutely, Richard. I, I really appreciate the time as well. And I, I look forward to seeing you and everyone else at AOPA soon. harrowing VFR sked running story from Dennis Martin, and you can just feel the tension in the cockpit as things began to close in on him. And that's in spite of the fact that he was well prepared for the flight, had done his homework on looking at the weather and what his expectations were, and the weather just got worse. A very positive takeaway from this incident was his confidence in dealing with ATC. In one case, just simply telling them unable on a frequency change, realizing that he was too task-saturated even for that minor task. And in another case, not accepting their encouragement that they could vector him in because from their perspective, it looked a lot easier than what he could tell it was in his cockpit. It's a great land and live story. We're glad he made it through and made the decisions he did and so thankfully shared his story with us. Thanks for joining us on this edition of There I Was, alongside our producer, Tyler Pangborn. I'm the host, Richard McSpadden. Fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.